to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today, I'm actually so happy to have one of my best friends on as a guest today, Stan Ponte, who is one of the premier real estate agents in New York City, a 20-year veteran, and as I said, really one of my greatest friends. Stan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, Michael, it's such an honor to be uh, one of your inaugural guests. Uh, you are someone that not only uh, I look up to, uh, but I know real estate uh, brokers and franchise owners and experts all over the world uh, look to you uh, for what's going on. So uh, hopefully uh, in today's conversation and then in all of the uh, podcasts I'll get to listen to in the future, um, I can uh, also be better attuned to the state of real estate. Now you see why Stan's a guest here. <laughs> Stan, thank you for the kind words. Uh, but I really wanted to have your expertise. You are such an expert in not only the New York market, but really globally, which is really one of the reasons you're here. And um, I think everyone is interested in New York real estate. When we start looking at this from a global perspective, New York is a brand and you are really in the forefront of this. You've had one of your best years here thus far, record year, really, and really representing some of the most iconic properties, Woolworth, just to name a, a, a select one. Um, but it is so exciting to have the vibrancy of a New York City marketplace and your expertise. Before we dive into the questions, can you just give me an overview on the New York City market through your eyes? Sure. Well, uh, the best thing I can say about the New York City real estate market today uh, is that it is solidly a buyer's market. Uh, there is real opportunity in New York City today uh, to enter the market as an investor, as a first-time home buyer, um, or as someone who already owns in New York or is renting in New York, uh, and wants to take the next step to a, a larger uh, apartment or townhouse. Um, what we have seen uh, is a slow decrease in average sales that in this end of second quarter, moving into the third quarter of 2019, really accelerated. Uh, so the New York City market has uh, typically uh, followed the stock market. Um, right. We really have these two major financial uh, pieces of what makes up the day-to-day -day life of New York City, the real estate market and the stock market. And the stock market, of course, is hitting record highs. Um, the uh, job market is strong. Incomes are rising. Interest rates are historically low. And all of these things should add up to a recipe for a very strong real estate market. And the question I think from a lot of people is, why uh, is the market not as strong as it could be? Sure. And there are really two reasons for that. Uh, the first is we are still um, seeing construction, uh, new condominiums being added to our inventory uh, that were conceived in the last downturn. Um, as you well know, Michael, in all markets, when a recession hits, uh, developers are able to pre-purchase materials, buy land, and hold it until they feel the market is ready. Uh, and what we've experienced here now 
is really a glut of new inventory, especially in the new development luxury range. So what that's added up to at the end of the uh, third quarter, which we've just wrapped up um, here and now we're solidly in this in the fourth quarter, um, was an average sale price decrease of 21% wow. over quarter. That's not a number that we're used to seeing um, in Manhattan. And I think that um, one of the things that that really points to is a change in the way that people are buying real estate. And this is where, uh, for your listeners, I would strongly suggest that this is a buyer's opportunity market. One of the things we know from being on the ground is that, interestingly, people are not very open to negotiating very uh, hard. So what do I mean by that? I mean that people don't typically look at a price, let's use a price like, $10 $10 million and offer 20% less or 25% less, despite the fact that the average sale price is down 21%. So this difference between what is the average listing inventory discount, which is only 5% this last quarter, and the average price discount, which is 21%, is where the real information is, what it really means to a buyer is that if you enter this market with a smart and savvy broker, they will be able to guide you to the properties where you can make an offer 15, 20, even 25% below the list price and find a seller that's willing uh, to engage and move to accepted offer and contract out. Stan, I think that is an incredible perspective to really break it down in that detail. And what is interesting to me, several things of what you said, but let's talk about new construction for a moment. It was interesting to think about the lag time that happens with developers coming into the marketplace, coming into a a market like New York City. And what was interesting is that when those developers were looking at these projects, the foreign investment into New York City was still very vibrant. And that has also changed quite a lot. Can you talk about what that atmosphere looks like? And then I promise we'll get into your interview in just a second. Well, listen, the best part about being a New York City real estate broker is there's never any lack of conversation at a party. <laughs> uh, because people always want to very true. So I don't take it personally that no one really ever asks about me. Uh, <laughs> I promise I will. <laughs> okay. uh, at any rate, um, what you point out is very interesting, and I want to take it a level deeper than we typically hear in the press. So... I think it's reasonable to believe and is true, as the press reports, that some um, drivers of foreign investment in the New York City real estate market have lessened. Uh, We have seen uh, decreases from Asia as some of those countries tighten um, their monetary policy in terms of moving capital out of their countries. We've seen geopolitical issues affect investors from Russia, um, and we have seen uh, general difficulties in South America uh, with their actual currency, which has made it difficult for them to invest in any way. So what I would say is the following. 
even when you have found a foreign investor who has the capital ready to move into the New York City real estate market, you have to always remember what drove those investors and what drives them today, not just in New York City, but on the global stage. And that is return. Global investors are extremely keen to find markets where their investment doesn't only uh, pay for itself or allow for a flight of capital and uh, capital safety in another market outside of their country, they want to make a profit. And we in New York City, historically, through the late 80s, 90s, early 2000s, um, if you were a foreign buyer, you found uh, yourself able to buy off plan, off of an initial offering price. Um, people be, in every language could call it the original Schedule A. Uh, no matter what language you spoke, you understood that. <laughs> Remember <laughs> those days? <laughs> right. Because simply right. what it meant was you were one of the first into the project. And by the time you arrived at a closing table, um, that Schedule A pricing may have been increased three times, five times, ten times. You may be on the 12th or 15th pricing and made a profit. Unfortunately, over the past three or four years in New York City real estate, certainly since our last peak in 2013-14, the original buyers off of the original Schedule A are more likely to pay more than the last 20 or 30% of the buyers in a building. And this turning upside down of what had been a way to invest and make money even before the closing table has really cooled foreign investors from the New York City real estate market. And they're looking at opportunities in other markets where growth is stronger. Uh, and I know, of course, as you travel the world, you do find yourself in markets, uh, as do I when I take some of those trips, where you're still seeing double-digit growth annually. Absolutely. And Absolutely. that's where the capital is going. And I think it's really interesting to also look at, you know, the immigration issue and the EB1 programs, EB5 programs that were uh, so well received here at, at some period of time also cooling off. And as you mentioned, I'm actually traveling to China later this week. And uh, there's a lot of still robust activity, even though there's a lot of cooling measures within mainland China, that money that's already out of China is certainly moving in other markets. And I think it's an interesting conversation. But I actually now want to bring the conversation back to you. Um, so you obviously stand and built a great career in real estate really in that luxury market and have almost become a brand in and of itself uh, with you as Dan Ponte. And I actually just wanted to know really briefly how you actually started in real estate. It's a good question. It uh, takes us back 20 years ago uh, this <laughs> June. Um, and I, like so many other uh, young New Yorkers, came to New York to uh, study acting and to be an actor. Uh, and like so many actors, uh, added a word before my title, uh, which was the word starving. Uh, so <laughs> I was a starving actor, which when living in Greenwich Village actually means you're going to the corner pizzeria and buying a slice for a dollar um, and uh, maybe two slices for 250 with a medium Pepsi. 
Um, <laughs> and that was pretty much my life. Um, and I had a very, very close friend at the time who shared that life with me. And we shared many a uh, Chinese dinner and a slice uh, the next night. And he called me up one evening and said, hey, Stan, I want to uh, go out to dinner. I said, okay, where are we going? Are we going to you know, go for pizza? And he said, no, I want to treat you to a steak dinner. And I said, a steak dinner? I hope you're paying because I can't afford it. <laughs> and he said, no, I, it's my treat. And I thought to myself, hmm, that's interesting. So away we go to a great steak restaurant in the meatpacking district of New York. And two hours later, two bottles of wine, a ribeye, a T-bone, dessert, <laughs> Caesar salad, lobster tails, the whole thing. Um, he finally looks at me and he says, you know, I didn't want to tell you until I had a couple of months under my belt, but I got my real estate license and that's how I'm paying for dinner. I've been doing really, really well um, renting apartments. And so I sat there dumbfounded, staring at my friend. I went home full and happy, but <laughs> could not sleep at all. And finally at about 4.30 in the morning, I woke up I'm going to age myself now. I opened the yellow pages and <laughs> found the New York Real Estate Institute, where I promptly showed up at 6.30 in the morning for classes starting at 9 a.m. Um, and signed up, uh, took my real estate license, took three classes a day in Brooklyn and Manhattan, every three hours, another class, and dove into real estate and really uh, never looked back. I love that story. I don't think I ever knew the details of that story. No, I'm let me get those details. In <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you, you've certainly made up by buying other people's steak dinners in the 20 years that, uh, that you've actually continued your career. So tell me, you started then from a very humble beginning and, and really are leading in the luxury market. How did that happen? How did you go from your friend that were doing rentals to you joining the business, getting your license and then jumping in to now really being one of the top agents in, in the most competitive market on the planet. Well, I think like everyone else in the world, we all get a chance and that chance isn't always completely handed it to us. Sometimes we've got to sort of grab it and shake it. And, um, <laughs> I was a rental broker, you're right, literally at the bottom rung of the business, renting basement apartments next to the boiler room to NYU students, having their parents look at me like I was crazy for this $2,500 a month rental. Um, and I had the good fortune at the time that the dot-coms really started coming uh, to New York City, and they would come with you know, groups of uh, young grad students who were given a bunch of VC money to open up a dot-com in Manhattan. And the way they would do that is they would rent a huge space in Soho or Tribeca with a pool table and five or six bedrooms and make that their live-work space. So I was lucky enough to do a couple of very big deals uh, with these new dot-comers, and I started going to their parties in a way to make more business. And at one of the parties, I met the assistant um, to a very well-known movie star um, who was looking to buy an apartment in Tribeca for about five or six million dollars at the time. This is wow. years ago. Wow. And I said, well, I'd be happy to help 
um, this person buy this apartment. And I went home thinking, how am I going to do this? Will, will this person suggest me? So the next morning, I sent flowers and chocolates to this personal assistant with a note <laughs> saying, would you please give me a chance, you know, with your boss? Um, and I got no response at all. And then 48 hours later, I was walking by Balthazar in Soho, and she had mentioned that that was her favorite brunch restaurant. So sure. I popped in, I bought a $250 gift certificate, which to me was a lot of money still at that time. And I sent it to her office, and the phone rang, and her and her boss um, were laughing on the phone saying, wow, you must be really desperate. <laughs> and I said, I am really desperate. Uh, and he said, well, we'll meet you at two o'clock on Thursday. Uh, we hope you'll have a driver with you. And I hung up the phone and I thought, oh my God, I have a movie star client who wants to see $5 million apartments in Soho. I have no suit, no tie, no driver, no car. And I don't even know how to find these listings because at the time there was no database. So long story, fairly shorter. I spent the next two and a half weeks finding a suit, uh, finding a car and driver, getting the listings from my competitors. And after two and a half weeks of almost out every day looking at apartments, I got a call uh, from uh, this movie star, who shall name unnamed. And this of course, anyway, of course. Saying, I'm so sorry, we just signed a contract on an apartment that was with one of your competitors. Oh no. Not co-broke down. And I sat there just staring down at my desk, staring at my phone, which was no longer ringing because I <laughs> stopped working on all the rental deals, looking into my boss's office who was sort of glaring at me because I was no longer bringing in lots of rental deals. Sure. And as luck would have it, my phone rang and the president of one of the white glove firms of New York City was on the other line saying, I don't know who you are, but my brokers tell me you're out with this movie star client and I would like to meet you. And I went on the interview and the very next day I started at one of the most prestigious firms in New York City luxury real estate. Um, and that's how I began. That is an incredible, incredible story. I love this. I'm actually learning so much about Stan just in this conversation that I haven't known in years of friendship. So Stan, thank you so much for really the candor that you're having in, this, um, in, in, in these questions. Absolutely. This is such a great conversation. Absolutely, Michael. So I'm going to shift a little bit. Stan, you're married. You are involved in many, many philanthropic uh, organizations. You're the president of the Drama League. You have uh, been a strong supporter of the Anti-Violent Project, which actually in 2017 gave you their highest recognition, which was the Courage Award. You have been involved with the Catskill Animal Sanctuary, the American Repertory Theater. Uh, you, there is so much that you do. I'm going to miss a lot of this. But my question is, I'm actually convinced that you're cloned, but how do you balance your time? Because this is insane what you do and how much you do for the community. Well, it's a good question, and we won't cross out the potential of insanity. <laughs> I think that when you follow your heart and you have passion uh, for ideas, that time finds you. And I love that. Energy finds you. And 
when you talk about some of the organizations that you mentioned, uh, the great need uh, that exists uh, to put an end to violence uh, in the LGBTQ uh, community, uh, the great need that exists to protect animals, yeah. uh, not just at the Catskill Animal Sanctuary, but even close to home uh, with my mother's uh, new uh, horse rescue ranch, which we've just turned into a 501c3 named Legacy Ranch. I love uh, that. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, I think that uh, when you live in New York City, I learned from one of my earliest mentors in the business that we have a responsibility to be a member of society, not only in good standing, uh, but in generosity of time, energy, and resources. And so it's true. Um, I might uh, have stretched myself a little thin, and every once in a while I have to <laughs> take stock and make sure that I am staying focused. Uh, but the real answer is that when you allow yourself to be grateful for uh, your friends, your work, your life, uh, and you enter into this kind of public service, um, there just isn't a tired button uh, because the people that you're helping um, have much more of a right to be tired, I think. Uh, so you keep on trucking, you keep on doing, um, and you mentioned the Courage Award. It's, it's always so amazing to do work with an organization and, and then to turn around and to be recognized by that organization. And in fact, uh, right before the Thanksgiving weekend, uh, John and I uh, just found out that we'll be receiving uh, the Rand Harlan Stolnik Social Responsibility Award um, from the Bailey House, which is now an arm of Covenant House. Oh my gosh, congratulations. The, uh, this March. So, you know, it goes a long way to saying that if you have the benefit of living and working in the greatest city in the world, uh, that the time it takes to give back, the time it takes to mentor, the time it takes to raise a little money, shake down a few friends, beg a little, <laughs> um, is a small price to pay for the privilege of, of living and working in New York City. And Stan, that is why you deserve every bit of your success. It is just so moving to really know you and your husband, John, and to really know the difference that you are making in the world. And, you know, for, for me to really be close and in close proximity to your efforts, I really am in awe of everything that you do. So I, I really just thank you as a friend and as, as part of society for, for what you do. Um, and it's just really terrific to sort of see all of that. But I'm going to shift a little bit. I'm going to ask you, what's the greatest lesson you've learned, not from one of your successes, but from one of your failures? I was uh, selling the second townhouse of my career, which is about uh, 15 years ago. Um, and it was uh, for a couple living in Greenwich Village in a townhouse that they had inherited in the 1950s. Uh, one of the couple was a priest. Uh, the other uh, made scarves in the basement. Wow. And lived a very, um, you know, pretty simple life, um, except for the fact that they lived in a multi-million dollar townhouse as property values had increased. So 
Um, I was fortunate enough to win uh, their business and, to be honest, their trust. Uh, and they asked me to represent their townhouse exclusively for sale. And after the first uh, couple of months, we had a lot of great showings. It was a fabulous mid-century house, one of the only townhouses in Manhattan to be built in the 1950s. And it was really something special. And we ended up with two offers. Uh, the first offer, interestingly enough, was from a mid-century modern collector of furnishings. And they really wanted the house to display their furniture. And the second buyer uh, was a young uh, couple um, that had really hit it off over uh, a showing where the owners had stayed home with the owners. And the owners really saw themselves handing this townhouse and the love they had shared there and the time they had been there to this you know, newer couple. So we ended up with both of the buyers being uh, interested enough that we ended up in a bidding war. And the collector um, was the winner. And I remember meeting with the owners and they said, you know, Stan, we realize this person is willing to pay a little bit more money, but we really want to sell the house to this young couple. And I remember convincing them that they had to take the most money that it was the right thing for them. And they pushed back a little, um, but eventually you know, conceded and we sent out contracts uh, to the higher bidder. And it was around Christmas time, almost right around where we are now. And I went away on my annual Christmas vacation and my phone rang. And sure enough, that buyer backed out and wow. said they didn't want the house. So I got quickly on the phone, called the broker who represented that young couple that the owners had really preferred, and they had bought another house. Mm. So I had to call this elderly couple, both well into their 80s, and explain that not only didn't we have a sale, but we didn't even have the backup of the young couple that they wanted to sell to. And I'll never forget the one gentleman saying to me, Stan, we are so hurt and disappointed that you didn't listen to what we wanted to do. And it's the very last time in this business where I have decided that I was right, or I was the expert without listening to who I truly represent. Mm -hmm. So it was a lesson very, very difficult to learn. Uh, but it has served me well, I think, over the years, because there's you can talk about percentages as we did at the beginning of our conversation today. Markets are up, markets are down. But at the end of the day, real estate, above all other uh, big industries, is a human business. Absolutely. And that was a moment where I, I had my humanity sort of handed to me on a platter. Um, and I appreciate the hard lesson. Uh, and I can assure you it won't happen again. But it's also a lesson that you then give to others. And even just in your humility of sharing that probably affected many listeners today. Um, so I really am appreciative of your candor. Um, you are a huge believer in networking. You're a huge believer in sharing in co-brokering and in, in doing whatever you can. Um, 
What are some of the creative ways that you network? Well, it's a, it's a really good question. And I, I, I think I have some good answers and I'll share those. But I want to start with sort of where I left off on the last answer, which is networking in real estate is really a person-to-person human connection uh, endeavor. Um, it's not enough to be a top broker and have your name in lights and you know talk about this ranking and that ranking. It's not enough just to be the best because a lot of us are the best. Many of my colleagues year over year can claim to be number one, number three, number five, sell this many hundreds of millions of dollars in real estate. But none of that really answers the question that you're asking around networking. Because the core of networking is trust. The core of a referral from another broker is that broker saying, I've had potentially a 20-year or 30-year relationship with this family. I have bought and sold their homes, their children's homes, their grandchildren's homes, and they've just told me they're going to buy or sell in New York City. And I'm calling you, Stan, uh, because I trust you with this relationship that I've spent the better part of maybe a quarter of a century building and cultivating. And the only way to know if you can trust someone is getting to know them. So I'm afraid there's no good secret sauce. And if there is, I probably just missed it. Um, and maybe I'll <laughs> listen to more of your podcasts over here and come and say something. But until, until I learn better, um, I'm going to continue doing what I've been doing, uh, which is meeting Sotheby's International Realty brokers. And to be honest with you, brokers from all firms globally, face-to-face. Uh, visiting them in their offices, um, going to the properties that they represent, supporting them at an open house, going to a pitch, sometimes in person, sometimes by Skype on another continent uh, to show that they've got a friend and a colleague in New York City and that we all work together as a team. Sometimes I'm showing up to help save a listing uh, that isn't working out. Um, Other times I'm acting as an extra pair of eyes, sometimes a fresh pair of eyes. Um, I remember being in Turks and Caicos with our good friends uh, there um, and meeting with an owner who was selling a property that was a a record-breaking sale for one of the islands. And the owner at Valentine's Day dinner, if you can imagine, he says, well, come sit down with my wife and I. I'm like, it's Valentine's Day, but real estate, <laughs> real estate always comes first. That's real estate. It's and, the greatest uh, love. Yes. And he said, you know, is my property priced correctly? And I said, I have no idea if your property is priced correctly, but I do know it's gorgeous. I was there today with the brokers. I did some social media from the house standing in the water up to my ankles on the ocean. Yeah. I said, you know, this house is beautiful. And so is the blank, you know, parcel, the empty lot of land next to it that you are the guest house next to that. And you're offering all three of these properties in one pretty significant price by any measure. I said, if it were me without knowing anything, I might just offer your private house for sale at the lower number and then use that as the bait out in the big ocean of buyers. 
Um, and my guess is that once someone wants your house, they're not going to want someone building next door, and they are going to want a guest house for family and friends. And sure enough, a couple of months later, that's exactly what happened. They changed the listing, and they ended up selling the entire three properties to one buyer. So that kind of face-to-face, person-to-person um, care and really friendship is the basis for uh, the referral network uh, that I've put together. I'm, I'm very proud to say that over the past five years, every single year, over half of my uh, business has been broker-to-broker uh, referral. I take those referrals very, very seriously and I'm very appreciative that people are willing to trust me uh, with their hard-earned uh, clients and friends. And that's, you know what, and that's so important. Um, a couple of things on the Turks and Caicos story for the listeners, we're actually going to have the owners of Turks and Caicos on a future podcast, and we'll get into that story uh, in greater detail. Because I think that's a fantastic story of what happened with collaboration. But what you were really talking about is really trust, right? And trust of your reputation. And I remember when I was actually uh, selling real estate early on in my career, I was actually representing a celebrity client as well. And, you know, we had signed an NDA, uh, non-disclosure agreement, and the client's budget was north of $20 million. And so I had the client come down and the client CEO had asked, uh, had done uh, a pre-visit and he had selected just one house for him. And I thought that was a bit unfair. And I had two houses on standby that were open, but they weren't listed with the agency that I was working with. And so I called basically my competition and I said, I need your house open. I can't have you be there and I can't tell you who it is. And so that only happens when you build the reputation and the trust, not only within your firm, but within the community. Because that has to happen to have someone be able to do that. And then it was actually one of those other homes that actually ended up being the successful sale. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it was a sale of over $20 million. And it was something that happened just based on what you're talking about, which is trust. Absolutely. You know? And so, I'm gonna, so you've built this great career, Stan, and you and your husband have had so many successes. I know that um, your husband is also incredibly successful in the financial world, and you're involved in many other sectors, which actually real estate for you gave you that freedom. And I think that um, that is one of the greatest gifts. And I actually love what you guys are doing. And there's some involvement that you have with the music industry, which also brings us back to some of your philanthropic efforts. You tell the audience some of what you're working on right now outside of real estate. Sure. Um, In fact, it's uh, very timely. Uh, Just two weeks ago, our um, newly formed uh, record label uh, called Amplified Music uh, had its uh, world debut performance at the United Nations for World Children's Day. And we uh, did a, a re-recording remix of Skip Marley's song, Refugee. Amazing. And we <laughs> wow. traveled to Berlin this summer um, to record the song with a Syrian refugee who is living in a, a refugee camp in Berlin, in the old airport, in fact. 
Um, and we uh, created this new uh, song and debuted it uh, at the uh, World Children's Day at the United Nations, and it'll be released uh, in January and available for purchase. Uh, Amplified Music is really the brainchild of one of my closest and dearest friends, Serene Sass, who left Warner Music uh, to head up this new label. And the goal of the label uh, is to partner uh, global uh, names like Skip Marley and others that are, are to come with those that have the talent but don't have the voice. So, for instance, this young rapper um, is extremely talented, but obviously living in a refugee camp. So it's the partnering of the voiceless uh, and the helpless, whether it's refugees, whether it's people living in difficult situations due to war or due to famine or due to other political uh, issues uh, that we look forward to focusing and, as you can hear in the name of our record label, amplifying their voices. That is so beautiful. It's it's amazing. And, you know, I had the uh, the pleasure of seeing the video, which is really incredibly moving. And this might bring me to my last question of you, Stan. And it's a very it's a very large one and answer it. However, it really uh, resonates with you. But what do you want your legacy to be? I guess you take a big breath when someone asks you a question about <laughs> legacy. So I'm going I'm to allow myself that big, loud breath. <laughs> um, you know, I hope that what I hear often from, from people, especially people in the real estate industry, is that they're, they're rooting for me, that they've watched me over the years work in what can be a pretty aggressive, pretty dog-eat-dog, real estate, New York, you know, a little bit harsh environment. Um, And they've watched me to the very best of my ability, and not always perfect, obviously, act and work from a place of truth and a place of integrity and a common humanity. And in my head, I can hear, you know, nice guys can win too. And Mm. if there's a word like legacy, uh, which is a hard one to answer, I'm sure you can imagine. uh, It's that I wouldn't mind being remembered and being thought of for the idea that nice guys can win too. I think that's a wonderful place to end this. And I can say that as one of your friends, you have always spoken with truth and integrity and have been an incredible influence in my life. And I really want to thank you for the time you've spent with me today, for your candor, for being so open, for really teaching so well as you always do but really, it, it, it's just, Stan, you're just such a great person. And for me, it's just a privilege to have you in my life. And, um, and thank you. Thank you so very much for the time you've spent with me today. Well, thank you very much, Michael. And it goes without saying that I wish you the very, very best 
with this new endeavor. And I think that it will only be a, a way to amplify your own voice, uh, not only in the world of real estate, uh, but on the global stage as a thought leader um, and a real person of integrity. So I wish you all the best. And as I would have said when I was an actor, break a leg. <laughs> thank you, Stan. And thank you all of you for joining. And thank you for uh, joining the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez.